Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. I'm sure you've experienced prayer uh, that uh, was powerful and effective, as James describes it, and you've experienced prayer that didn't seem so, that uh, your answers uh, and your hopes uh, that you were praying for didn't seem to come off. And I wonder uh, what it is you do when uh, you think that uh, your prayers have not been answered uh, and what you fear, how you feel about that, and then what happens to you when you read verses like we read today at the end of chapter 5 that seem to imply that if we just have enough faith, then uh, our prayers ought to be answered. Well, uh, keep that in mind, because uh, we are going to think about that uh, as we work our way through the book. Uh, but first, uh, of course... We're in week five of our five-week series on the book of James where we've been flying over the top uh, of the book and uh, just trying to get our heads around the the, the thrust of what James is saying. Uh, We haven't had a chance, obviously, to get into every single detail of of all the different verses. Uh, But suffice to say, as it is uh, the start of Lent and as I said at the start of the service, that's a season that's meant to remind us of our great need for God's grace and salvation and our uh, incredible failure uh, to live up to God's righteous standards. Uh, The book of James, certainly for me at least, and I hope it has for you, uh, brings to mind some ways in which you've failed. Uh, It it, it says constantly, uh, uh, put your faith into action, live like this, do like this. And and as I read, I think, oh, you know what? I, I don't think I can, I, I can say that I've fully done that 100% this week or this month. It's a book, isn't it, that as it makes sure, as it seeks to make sure that our faith is not merely words, not merely just something in our head, but it's a, a faith that has, has works, it's a faith with fruit, it's a faith that transforms our relationships with other people, uh, it's a book that can be very challenging and convicting indeed. And we've seen, haven't we, that uh, in the first chapter, James started off by making sure in all of this that we've got our primary relationship sorted, that, we're, uh, uh, that we have our relationship with God right, and that we do that through being students of God's word, by reading it, uh, by hearing it, and then, most importantly, by doing what it says. This is how we get that first relationship right, not just letting the Bible wash over us and go, oh, that's nice, but actually taking it seriously and putting it into practice. That's uh, the first thing. Get that relationship with God right first. And then in the next three chapters, two, three and four, we saw how uh, James seeks to uh, apply God's word to our lives. So in chapter 2, we saw that uh, he wants to make sure that our faith impacts the way we treat others. That when we realise that God, in his grace, has saved us when we didn't deserve it, and when we realise that that's true, not just of me, but of you as well, and in fact of every single human being in the world, that that transforms the way we engage with others. 
that instead of seeing rich and poor or uh, nice and, uh, uh, and not less nice, but we just see people in need of the saving grace of God and we treat people equally and without favouritism. And he goes on, doesn't he, in that chapter to talk about how this really is one of the primary works of faith. Faith without works, he says, is dead. So, chapter 3, James encourages us then to watch our words. So, we've got our relationship with God sorted out, make sure that's first. Then he says, okay, now we need to make sure our relationship with others, we treat people equally. Now he says, it's time to think about how we use our voice, how we speak. And he tells us we need to tame our tongues to live the wise life, he calls it, where we're seeking to be peacemakers rather than people who cause arguments and bitterness. And in chapter 4, which we talked about last week, uh, he went on to talk about how the, he contrasts, doesn't he, that the peacemaker that God has called us to be, where we're seeking the good of others, where we're seeking uh, to deny ourselves uh, and, and to, to, to seek the other person's good, uh, he contrasted that to the self-centred, bitter uh, person who seeks to cause quarrels and fights, particularly amongst God's people. Well, today, as we get to chapter 5 of James's letter, he gives us really three big points. He gives us first a warning about money. Then he gives us an encouragement for us in suffering and then a final point on prayer and care that we'll come to and which I talked about at the start. But let's take the warning about wealth first. You see that in verses 1 to 6. You've got the reading in your sermon, uh, on the back of your sermon outline. You can follow along there. Uh, We saw back in chapter 4, if you were here last week, that James spoke about the importance of prayerful planning. Verse 13, he said, Now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He says, don't be like that. Don't just do your own thing without any thought of God. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. He's saying the way we go about our lives, the way we plan, we need to do so in such a way that takes into account the sovereignty of God. And just as James was encouraging obedience to God and trust in his power when it came to our use of time and our plans, now he's saying the same about our money. For the people he describes in verses 1 to 6 are people who are using their money selfishly. They're people who, verse 4, are not paying their workers, who in verse 5 are self-indulgent, and who, it seems in verse 6, have ultimately used their money to gain influence and to, to remove, to kill those who oppose them. Money has totally corrupted these people. And it's interesting that Kerry should have mentioned uh, when she was talking before uh, that fact that uh, even if you're on the pension with no assets, you're still in uh, the top 20% of richest people in the world. Because I read an article this week that said basically the same thing by the barefoot investor. Uh, 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 Sort of like uh, the millennials kind of uh, latest guy to read if you want to know what to do with your money. Uh, And he said that, in fact, if you're an Australian, you are indeed one of the richest people in the world. And so his advice to you was to stop worrying as much, basically, and to start uh, using the money that you had to invest. We are indeed wealthy people, and these verses do indeed apply to us. 
the start of this chapter, uh, the start of this section where he talks about these wealthy people starts with what I think is actually uh, a prophetic call to, to judgment on those who use their wealth selfishly. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. And then verses 2 to 5, he, he describes why, because of the way they've used money selfishly. But that first line, I think, is a warning, a prophetic warning that's meant to bring about repentance in the lives of the rich people he describes. It's much like, I think, the prophetic warning Jonah gives, if you are familiar with that book of the Bible. Jonah in chapter 3, once he finally gets to Nineveh, having tried to run away from God in the meantime, gets there and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown in chapter 3. And that's all. That's his prophetic message to the people of Jonah. But what happens? They hear the judgment of God on the sin of the, their sinful way of life and they repent from the king to the cows. It's a, it's a full-blown repentance at the judgment of God on their life and they are spared. And I think we see here a similar kind of thing. Weep and wail because of the misery coming upon you. Repent, James is saying, of this selfish way of using your money. The people who have allowed money to become their God, who have acted in ways that James has described, robbing their workers of their Jews, using their money to kill and destroy, they can be saved too if they repent and use their money for good. Verses 7 to 12, then, James gives an encouragement to those in suffering. And it was likely uh, the Christians James was writing to who were suffering at the hands of the wealthy that James has talked about in verses 1 to 6. And he writes to them and he says, as you face persecution and suffering, you need to keep patiently trusting the Lord. Often, I think, there's a tendency for us as Christians in, in the West to glorify uh, the idea of persecution, that it, wouldn't it be wonderful if the church just got persecuted a bit more? I hear this kind of thing all the time. It'd be just great if the church got persecuted more. And I, 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 like, I kind of get what they're saying. It might help us trust God more, but, but it also would suck. Uh, like, it, it wouldn't be that nice and in fact, it would cause all sorts of great pressure on us as, as we suffered. And I think that's why we get this exhortation from James in these verses, verses 9 through 11, for, for patience and, and to stop grumbling against one another because they're in the pressure cooker of persecution. And James is saying, be patient and keep trusting God even though it's hard. Even though people are starting to annoy you because you've got to do life more closely together and you need to rely on one another and, and people are attacking you from the top and, and there's friction in your close relationship as a church family, keep patiently trusting God in the face of suffering. And he gives the example of the prophets who, again, had to patiently trust God as they declare throughout the Old Testament uh, uh, God's judgment and God's saving acts even in the face of great persecution. Trust God, because eventually, in God's compassion and mercy, whether in this life or the next, he will bring about restoration and relief for his people. 
And we see this time and time again. I'd love to tell you a story, but it's a long story. I don't have time today, but I'll tell it to you over a cup of tea. After you finish with Kerry, you can come and uh, take a ticket for, with me. Uh, uh, a story uh, of my friend Abraham who works in Cambodia, who uh, his ministry has been to a persecuted minor- poor minority uh, uh, in Phnom Penh. Uh, and as he's worked with them, the persecution that he has faced from rich oppressors uh, and the lengths that they have gone to to seek to stop his ministry Uh, And the patient endurance of suffering that Abraham uh, has had to go through that has ultimately led to God's vindication time and time and time again. It's truly an amazing thing and such an great encouragement to all of us that these words James speaks here are indeed true. When we find it tough, when life is hard for us as Christians, we're called to patiently endure and trust that the Lord will put things to right, whether in this life or the next. Well, James rounds out this section with a final point on prayer and care. We heard in the kids' talk, James chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 13, that if we're in trouble, we need to pray. If we're happy, we need to sing praise. We need to effectively rejoice. We need to do musical prayers of joy. We're called to this constant life, whether in good times or bad, of prayer. And then from verses 14 through to 16, uh, we get this uh, encouragement to prayer for the sick. He says that if we're ill, we need to get the elders to pray for us and to anoint us with oil. And then verse 15 and 16, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And verses 17 to 18, uh, an illustration from the life of Elijah of the powerful, effective nature of the righteous person's prayer. But of course... I don't know about you, but I read these verses and I have a lot of questions. Uh, I have thoughts of my own prayers for people who've been sick or uh, for, for whatever the case might be that don't feel particularly like they've been very powerful or effective or the person hasn't gotten well. And so I wonder, what is James talking about here? Is, is that, am I meant to take this as... Uh, a, a condemnation on myself. I'm obviously not righteous or effective. Uh, or is there something else going on? Well, I think uh, there are just a few kind of broad points that I want to make that help us understand these verses in context. The first, I think, is that as some people read this passage they might be tempted to think that this is an encouragement in illness to, 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 to avoid the medical profession and instead seek the elders of the church. So people think, if I have faith, then what I must do is not go to the doctor, but instead go and see Chris and he can anoint me with oil and that's how I'll get better and actually going to the doctor is a sign of my lack of faith. That's, that's how some people understand these verses. I think that's not a very good way to understand these verses. 
because I think that makes a very, uh, a, a, a very big mistake. And, and the mistake that way it makes is to say that God is not present uh, in everything. He's only present when I can't explain it. So uh, it's, it's the God of the gaps theory. We, we, we say if we can explain something, then there's no need for God anymore. But if we can't explain it, then that must be proof that God exists. And, and the same thing goes in sickness. We go, if I get a cold and I take some codril and therefore I get well, God can't have been involved in that process. And we want to say, no. But when the codril tablet actually is effective in treating the illness in my body, it is the Lord who is sovereign over everything, who has blessed the doctors and scientists who've come up with that technology, uh, who has caused it to work in my body. God is in everything and controlling everything. When the surgeon resets my uh, broken arm back into place and the bone knits together, uh, uh, this is the Lord at work. Every good gift is from above. And so when he says, if you're sick, go to the elders, he's saying, do that and go to the doctor too. (laughs) Like, do both, because God is at work in everything. There is a spiritual dimension in all healing. But there are times, aren't there, when we'll especially need to seek God and his good grace. Second thing we see here is this calling of the elders and the anointing of oil. Uh, and in uh, the Catholic, Roman Catholic tradition and some Anglo-Catholic traditions, uh, uh, there's, there's been a, a practice of uh, a, a blessing of the oils uh, by a bishop, which a priest can go and collect, uh, and then the magic oil that they then have, uh, they will then, the priest will then use to anoint the sick person. Uh, and that's based on this verse. But you'd have to say that a lot of that practice seems a fair stretch from what we have here, which is simply, I think, James saying that in the local church, those leaders, myself, perhaps our parish councillors, those we've elected as leaders amongst us, we carry in our leadership the, 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 the prayerful hope that each of us have as Christians. And so... Uh, it's, a, it's a way of saying call the elders of the church that is get the church together and pray and anoint them with oil not special oil just oil it's a way of signing the person signalling the person off uh, uh, marking them as, as someone we especially and separately prayed for in fact probably what we should have done two weeks ago when we had Fiona up here and we were praying for her is I should have quickly ducked home and got my olive oil out and whacked a bit of oil on her as a sign of our prayer for her healing. What we find here is local leaders who are praying with someone with serious sickness. It's the prayer that's important, not the oil. Likewise, we see as well that uh, as we uh, consider these verses, uh, we've got God working through both uh, natural and supernatural means. We've got elders uh, and their oil uh, prayerfully praying for healing. 
we too as well see that for James, physical and spiritual health and healing are, are connected. You see that in verse 15, don't you? And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. I don't think James here is saying that if you're sick, it's because you've done some specific sin, though that could be the case. But rather what he's saying is that when we find ourselves physically ill, it is a time for great reflection on our lives. That when we're faced with our mortality due to illness, it's potentially going to bring to light sin in our lives. It's going to put things into perspective. It's going to cause much reflection. And it's going to build in us a desire that we be fully reconciled with God. And this is just as important as physical healing. The the, the, the natural and the supernatural, the elders and the oil, the physical and the spiritual healing. Finally, uh, we get to the effectiveness of prayer. The big question for me, at least, as I read these verses. The prayer offered in faith, verse 15, will make the sick person well. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Is prayer guaranteed to work if we do it right? Is that what James is saying here? And there's been much ink spilled. But I think there's a few helpful points that we can uh, note as we seek to understand this correctly. The first is that when Jesus prayed in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was uh, wrestling in prayer, wasn't he? Dripping sweat, uh, his sweat drops of blood. Uh, and in that wrestling, he, he prays, Lord, can, if, if, can you take this cup from me? He's praying. Is it possible somehow that I don't have to endure this thing? He prays earnestly, yet not my will, but yours. I think in in that Garden of Gethsemane scene, where the Lord Jesus is praying earnestly, though his situation doesn't change and he's still required to bear the sins of the world on the cross, I think in that moment his affliction is transformed as he aligns himself with the will of God. He humbles himself. And I think as we've worked through the book of James, haven't we, we've seen time and time again the author calling us to humbling ourselves, to trusting God, to admitting we can't do it on our own. And this sort of humble spirit that we see Jesus with in the garden, that James has called us through, is the kind of humble spirit that we need to take into our prayers of faith. That is, we must believe that God in his power and sovereignty can heal anyone. And yet we must not presume upon his exact will. It cannot be, can it, that this verse is a promise that if we simply build up enough faith and we simply ask with enough confidence that God will do what we say because that would be making God like a a, a wish fairy that, that we could just get stuff out of if we do it in the right way. And God's too big and too sovereign for that. 
Rather, it's a call for humble, prayerful faith, knowing that God has the power to heal, but trusting that he knows what is right in each and every situation. Prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective because it prays for the Lord's will to be done in each and every situation. Well, James finishes with these words. My brothers and sisters, verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think here we see again uh, James's concern both for the physically ill and the spiritually ill. And I, I find it quite interesting as I reflect on these verses how in my ministry often people will come to me and they'll say, um, hey Chris, did you know that uh, Bill was sick? And I'll say, oh no, I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. I'll, I'll pray for them and I'll, I'll see if I can try and visit them sometime in the next week or so and I'll give them a call and thank you so much. That happens to me a lot. People tell me all the time about when people are sick. But very rarely does someone come to me and say, hey, Chris, I'm really worried about Bill um, because I, I think he might be wandering away from the faith. Like, he's not coming to church that much. Uh, he seems to be kind of getting in with the wrong crowd and I'm not sure how to help him. Can you give me some advice? Or maybe you could talk to him. Hardly ever does that happen. And yet it's how James finishes his book. It seems to be that perhaps this is really one of the most important jobs we have as Christians, to help one another stand firm in the truth and save them from the sin of walking away from the Lord Jesus. Our concern for the physical well-being of our brothers and sisters and their spiritual well-being ought to be equal. But I think we might have elevated the physical over the spiritual. Well, James finishes this with this, this, his whole book with this teaching on prayer and care. And so as I finish, let me uh, encourage you that the faith that works, I think, is the faith that prays. This is one of the last things James talks about, our prayer life, because the church that prays together, the Christians that pray together, are the Christians that grow together in unity and fellowship and who fall away from bitterness and bickering. Uh, and who seek each other's good and who don't show favouritism to one another and who use their money uh, in outrageously generous ways. All of this happens when a church goes to prayer. Prayer, I think, is the key work of faith. And faith without works is dead. Faith without prayer is dead. And so let's be people who humble ourselves, who trust the Lord and who pray powerful and effective prayers, trusting in his righteous and perfect plans for each of us. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church. 
www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless you.